Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast with me and my co-host, Chloe Bunter. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices we take for granted are out of date or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room in Pilates, and we're here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a fair few F-bombs thrown in. This show is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher. If you've been enjoying the show and you want to give back, give us a five-star rating and write us a glowing review on Apple Podcast app. That'll help other instructors find the show and let us know we're making a difference. In this episode of Elephants, I talk with Lars Avemarie, who is a prolific advocate of evidence-based practice, uh, critical thinking, and uh, he's a great educator. So um, we range over a a number of topics related to evidence-based practice and how to think through the, the research and understand, you know, what it all means and how to think about your own thinking. So, um, I know you're going to love my convo with Lars. On this podcast, we talk a lot about critical thinking. And in fact, it's one of the key parts of our mission in the world is to help people think critically. In this episode, Chloe's taking uh, the morning off because it's a little bit too early for her. And I'm talking with Lars Avamari, who is a Danish physiotherapist based in Sweden. and. Uh, Although he's an awesome physiotherapist, actually his uh, greatest accomplishment um, and his far and far and wide-reaching fame is due to his uh, relentless critical thinking and promotion of critical thinking and evidence-based practice in the physiotherapy profession. So uh, this episode is going to really shine a light on what critical thinking is and why it's important and uh, how to do it. So Lars, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you uh, for the invite again. Uh, I'm very happy to be uh, back at the podcast. Yeah. So um, what is critical thinking? Yeah. So one of the most simplistic definitions of critical thinking is uh, from uh, Richard Paul, uh, who has written a number of books on critical thinking. So basically the simplistic definition is that critical thinking is thinking about your thinking uh, while you're thinking in order to make your thinking better. So it's, that's basically the almost a textbook definition of what is called metacognition. So it's actually we are thinking about our thoughts and reflecting upon them while we are thinking. Can you give me so an ex- the, can you give us an example? Yeah, so basically we all do this all the time. We have um, we have a voice in our head that is actually making a statement and then we have another person in the head while our brain is actually playing playing both parts that is sort of uh, coming up with with a question, is this a good thing to say? Uh, Should I say this now? Will this be appropriate? Um, So we have this ability to uh, ask questions towards our own thinking uh, all the time. Um, And we do this all the time, but it 
it takes a certain level of skill set uh, to do this in the context of uh, clinical reasoning. So, so if I've all right, so if I'm uh, if I'm with you know my aunt and um, I think oh. Uh, there's something I want to say that pops into my head, and then I think, oh, maybe, maybe that might she might not, you know, take that well, or maybe that's not a socially appropriate thing to say. So I have this, you know, we all have this filter. Um, so how do we, you know, but that's that's so that's metacognition, that's thinking about your thinking, but that's not yeah. yet. It's not yet critical thinking, though, is it? So how do we, how do we turn that into critical thinking? Yeah, so basically we all, all have this, This uh, well, most of us has this ability to reflect about our, our thinking, which is sort of what we're talking about here. But from a standpoint or from my practical standpoint, we need uh, a certain level of skill to be able to do this in a uh, more consistent basis. So basically critical thinking from my point of view is knowledge about a certain uh, number of topics. One of them is uh, argumentative theory. It's knowledge about logical fallacies. It's knowledge about cognitive biases. It's a knowledge of uh, epistemology. And it's also knowledge about the scientific method. So all those uh, conjoined are uh, the basis of critical thinking. And it takes a lot of hard work to be what we could call it fluent in those uh, skills. So another uh, definition of critical thinking, a more uh, academic um, definition, is from uh, Moore and Parker that uh, defines critical thinking as the careful application of reasoning in determining whether a claim is true. All right. So let's, 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 can we go back and double click on each of those things that you mentioned? So, all right. So uh, what's argumentative theory? So that's basically a whole, uh, a whole field of, um, of theory behind the, um, uh, Semantics, reasoning, uh, and logic, um, and within those argumentative theories is a subfield dealing with logical fallacies. And the logical fallacies that have been examined the most are the ones that appear at first to be reasonable and to be logical, but when you ask harder questions towards the reasoning it falls apart so this uh so the field of logic um again in a kind of a simplistic way is when we when we make an argument in our head or when we we even you know probably a lot of us wouldn't think of it as an argument we think of it as just a true statement many of meant much of the time like you know uh this per you know um anterior pelvic tilt causes back pain or something um uh, so that's a statement, you know, and whether it's a true statement or not is, is uh, dependent, you know, in part on the logical structure of, of that statement. So, for, you know, the, there's what's called a premise and what's called a conclusion. And so the premise is, in this case, it's like what we're assuming to be true uh, in this argument. So like anterior pelvic, this person has an anterior pelvic tilt. And then the conclusion is... Uh, 
anterior pelvic tilt causes back pain. So what you know, like how do we how do we is there is there a really simple way that we can examine a statement like that and think like okay does is this a does this logically make sense? Does this is there a structure to this this statement that is logical or how do we kind of tease that out, tease that apart? Yeah, and I think we should also. Um I don't think there's a simplistic way. Oh, well, there is a simplistic way of looking at it. Uh, I'll get back to that later. <laughs> but um, we have to backtrack a bit, I think. And that's about the hidden assumptions. So within this sentence, the assumption is already that uh, anterior, anterior pelvic tilt is actually something that is wrong. Uh, and and we have to backtrack that because we actually don't know that f- from just the argument being made. Right. So we have um, have to backtrack, and and it's a, it's a bit like this. Uh, and an example I use normally in my courses is um, there is five fundam- uh, let's say seven fundamental movement patterns, and that's actually begging the question which is one of the hardest uh, argumentative flaws to catch up. It's begging the questions that, one, there are seven. There are, in fact, seven fundamental movement patterns. We don't know that there could be 20 fundamental movement patterns, and there could be hundreds. It could be highly unique movement patterns. So actually, there could be no pattern within a human movement that is so specific that we can call it a specific pattern. It, that might also be the case. So basic within the argument I just made, we are begging the question that there are seven fundamental movement patterns. Right. So is, if we say uh, there are seven fundamental movement patterns or whatever number, it's like, well, in fact, is there such a thing as a fundamental movement pattern? And if so, how would one define a fundamental movement pattern? And how do we know that there are seven? And how do we know that they're the same number for every person? Exactly. Uh, and and then we could say, well, if, uh, if we apply that level of thinking that we often see in the physiotherapy world, it could be, well, okay, uh, if you're not well-versed in doing the seven fundamental movement uh, patterns, then you, then you get uh, low back pain. So if you, don't, uh, if you can't do these seven fundamental movement patterns with a high level of quality, movement quality, then you will get low back pain. But then we have to step back again and define, okay, what is movement quality? And do we even know that these seven movement patterns are actually in a causative relationship with back pain. Right. So the, there, if we come back to, say, the example of anterior pelvic tilt, the, the questions that, or the assumptions that we would need to question, you know, hidden within that are that, well, is, well, number one, can we detect anterior pelvic tilt? Like, how do we know if someone's got an anterior pelvic tilt or not? Um, number two, uh, is anterior pelvic tilt in fact related to back pain? Number three, uh, are, is, is, you know, can we do any, is there any 
any form of exercise or can exercise make it make any change to anterior pelvic tilt over time? And number four, like, well, if we can change anterior pelvic tilt with exercise, does that make any difference to someone's back pain? So all of those assumptions yeah. are within within that kind of statement. And zero would be, well, is it really something abnormal we have to correct? Yes. It might actually just be something normal. Right. And before we, uh, that's actually backtracking a couple of steps. Before we hurry out and try to correct something, we should be, make sure that we actually, it needs correcting. I think and, there's, and, there's an awful lot of that in Pilates. <laughs> uh, and I know there's quite a bit of it in physiotherapy as well. We, we go about correcting people's yeah, shoulder yes. movements and their pelvic tilts and their VMO activation and their pronation and their God knows what. Um, and we, we're generally, you know, we're making these, this same kind of logical, um, you know, illogical leaps from, you know, I believe that I detect this, you know, positional, you know, fault or variation or whatever. And we go straight from that to, oh, we need to fix it. What's the best exercise? Yeah. And we skip all of those other questions. Yeah. Often we, often, especially in the physiotherapy world, but it may be the case with the Pilates world also, we are way too quickly to think about implementation. We need to step back and, and actually think about if it, it is something we actually can correct or we should correct. Okay, we so might actually correct something that's actually a good thing. And the cases often like the, the, the examples I, I can think of off the bat here is something like inflammation. Well, actually inflammation might not be a good thing to correct and to try to decrease it might actually have some benefit to the body. Or it could be a, a, a textbook example of where it's actually where we're going uh, way too fast with implementing is um, the case of a keto diet in the case of uh, cancer. So in the case of cancer, uh, some people thought, well, cancer lives off of uh, glucose. And it's very hungry. It's glucose hungry. Um, so what uh, we might do, what uh, what we could do is actually we just take away cancer's fuel, and then a cancer can't grow. And that's the basic assumption. However, when this was examined, this is uh, in part a good thing with some cancers. The problem were they found out that some cancers actually respond and become hyper-aggressive in the case where they don't get any glucose. Mm -hmm. So now we have just turned, turned a little, a, a big problem into a huge problem. Because if there's something you don't want, it, you don't want to turn a cancer from uh, something aggressive to something very aggressive. Okay. Well, there are two things I want to I want to explore a little bit more there. So the first one is that uh, so maybe maybe a rule of thumb could be you know when as a practitioner out there you know working with a client when you find yourself asking the question what's the best exercise to correct this problem you know whether it's anterior pelvic tilt or scapular instability or knee 
tracking or whatever. So when you find yourself asking those questions, maybe, you know, that could be a trigger to ask, okay, well, is this in fact something that needs correcting? You know, how do I know that this is actually causing a problem? Maybe that's, if if we could substitute that question, maybe that would be a really good starting point. Yeah, it would. The the second thing that I want to I want to explore a, a bit more is what you know what you sort of highlighted with that um, story of the the keto diet and cancer is that interventions these interventions can often have a complex and unforeseen effects and yeah. so we think we're we're sort of correcting one thing in isolation but in fact we're 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 changing a whole bunch of things that we're not necessarily consciously aware of. So for instance, if we, you know, would do exercises with someone to quote, you know, correct their pelvic tilt, well, that's going to, you know, just, just thinking from a biomechanicals perspective, right? Leaving out any kind of placebo effects or, you know, contextual effects of the exercise or, or the interaction, or whatever, just thinking from a biomechanical standpoint, well, if we change their pelvic tilt, we're also going to t- change, you know, what's happening at their hip joints, what's happening at their lumbar spine, what's happening at their thoracic spine, their shoulder girdle, their cervical spine, their feet. And so how do we know that that pelvic tilt was, is, is something that, you know, we see that pelvic tilt as, as, as a bad thing, but what if that pelvic tilt is part of a system-wide motor strategy that that person has developed in order to optimize function, you know, throughout their whole body, throughout their kinetic chain, right? So if we change the pelvic tilt, we're like, oh, great, now the pelvic tilt's awesome, but what have we done to the feet? What have we done to the knees? What have we done to the shoulder girdle? And how do we know that that those changes are all going to be beneficial? Yeah. So first, I want to uh, uh, step back and answer the, the first question. Uh, with the assumptions. So um, one of my colleagues, as I recall, he had a physiology professor and he had a saying that uh, the saying is just because it's logical doesn't mean it's physiological, meaning that, well, sometimes we have theories about what happens in the body, but they don't hold up when we test them. Uh, and that's one of the the key areas where we why we need research and why we need really to probe our own assumptions because sometimes we found out through research that well it wasn't actually so uh, that we thought uh, a lot of the problems we get ourselves uh, into and this is a side note is when we try to show of our widths within what happens in the body. Uh, When we start to make theories about uh, complex systems, like you talked about earlier, then we often, uh, we will very quickly dig our own grave um, of flawed theories. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I kind of think of that sometimes as it, you know, it's kind of, well, it's not kind of, it is the wrong question to ask. Like, how do I fix someone's pelvic tilt or how do I fix someone's scapular positioning or whatever? Because, you know, the, 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 I mean, when we think about even again, just, just from a biomechanical perspective, from a motor perspective, you know, there are 620 odd muscles in the body, incredible complex sequencing of, of, 
all of those muscles contracting to basically do any movement, like lift a cup of tea or take a step in in walking or anything like that. And to the hubris to think that we can make a change at someone's arch in their foot or their knee position or their shoulder or whatever, and that that will just be like that that one there's one button that we can press in the cockpit of the space shuttle that is going to solve this problem and it it it's it's such a simplistic kind of almost kind of childlike uh kind of approach to to thinking like oh yeah there's just one there's one there's one magic button here that's going to fix this and 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 not not recognizing that anything we do is just going to have vast complex unforeseeable second order consequences that we can't possibly <laughs> can't possibly plan for yeah and this also deals uh, it, this also touches upon our view of ourselves as health practitioners as something uh, somebody who fixes stuff uh, a key um, key trait of the um, the medical practitioner in the old days where he was sort of a, a find it, fix it type of person. And this is particularly prominent within the biomedical model. Uh, so we find a problem and fix a problem. And in some cases, there is a problem that we actually can fix in some cases. But when we're talking about more complex uh, symptoms and diseases, it's often not that simplistic. And in the case of pain, it's clearly not that uh, simplistic. Right. And so, I mean, you know, like you say, the, the biomedical model has its has its you know, useful applications. And, you know, if you have a broken arm, for example, you know, that's largely a biomedical problem that we, we know, you know, we know how to solve that and we can find it and we can fix it. But even yeah. with something like total knee replacement or just in general post-operative uh, surgical uh, pain and disability is predicted by things like preoperative catastrophizing and things. So we know that, okay, even in this, you know, relatively straightforward, you know, we're just going to get a hammer and nails and, and fix this, you know, fence post that's a bit, you know, leaning to the side or whatever. Like even then there are other complex, you know, non-mechanical influences that, you know, have a, have a pretty important effect on people's outcomes. And when it comes to, you know, non-specific pain, which is, let's face it, Ninety percent or so of 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 the things that people present with to the typical Pilates instructor, um, and probably most physiotherapists working outside of a hospital as well. Um, you know, really, the the biomedical approach doesn't. You know, the the find it and fix it approach doesn't really give us the best result. So, all right. So we've 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 talked about the the internal logic of questions like, you know, how do I fix anterior pelvic tilt or, you know, um, how do I help somebody get better at doing these seven fundamental movement patterns to fix their back pain and, and a questioning the assumptions hidden, uncovering the assumptions hidden within those questions like, okay, are there in fact seven fundamental movement patterns and if we could improve them, would that help the back pain and how do we measure quality in movement and uh, et cetera. Um, and and so asking really the question of you know when we notice ourselves asking how do I fix X maybe instead ask the question okay why is it important to fix X you know is is X in fact something that needs to be fixed you mentioned also logical fallacies which are not 
quite the same thing. Um, you know, can you talk us through what a logical fallacy is and maybe give an example? Yeah, so basically the, the most logical fallacies are non-sequiturs, meaning it doesn't fit. And actually touched upon those uh, before, it's when the premise of an argument doesn't fit the conclusion. So basically, an example I use in my uh, course is um, all TV shows are black and white. Penguins are black and white. Therefore, uh, penguins are all TV shows. So basically, the first two premises are correct. Penguins are black and white. All TV shows are black and white. But the conclusion derived from the... uh, Set premises are incorrect. I learned that. I, I learned that as uh, Mozart is a table. All tables have legs. Mozart has legs. Therefore, Mozart is a table. Yeah, exactly. That's another example. Um, so that's a, a, a very good example of a, a logical fallacy. And then there's um, there's a, a more a more realistic um, fallacy. Is the naturalistic fallacy, meaning that everything that is natural is good. Like, but like arsenic just, and hydrochloric acid. Yeah. So, but if we actually uh, think about that a little bit, we, we can quite quickly uh, find out, well, medicine is not natural. And if you have diabetes, insulin is very, very good. You need insulin. And you can go out to the forest especially here in Sweden or in Denmark, and you can find a locally uh, grown, totally organic mushroom, a very particular mushroom with uh, its um, red with uh, white dots. And if you eat it, you will most likely become very, very sick or even die. Yeah. And that's 100% natural. I can think of a lot of other natural things that aren't that great for you, like typhoid and hyenas and poisonous snakes and hydrochloric acid. And there's a long list of natural things that are not good for you. So yeah, the naturalistic fallacy that just applying the word natural to something, uh, you know, means it's, it's, it's going to be beneficial. Um, and then there's a non, the non sequitur where basically there's a true premise but the conclusion doesn't logically follow from the premise. And so that would, I think that's one that we, you know, like you say, I think that's a super common one uh, in the in the exercise world, in the Pilates world, in the physiotherapy world, where it might be something, like you said, like, you know, if you don't, well, let's say, you know, this person has uh, weak abdominals, therefore um, their back hurts. Right, and so it might be, in fact, the case that their abdominals are weak. Although, how would you measure that? But even if that's true, it doesn't, in fact, necessarily follow that that's what's causing their back pain. It's not. That's not an inescapable logical conclusion from that premise. No, and uh, not in a way. We, if we should prove that in a scientific way, we need to take like hundred people. Um, with the different strengths of abdominals. And then we have to follow them at a certain time. So actually we have to do not a retrospective study, but a prospective study. And then we should see if these people 
with weak abdominals actually develop low back pain. If we were to see that, then we could see, okay, there might be something with this. Uh, But to my knowledge, this is, again, a very simplistic notion about uh, what pain is. Right. So uh, it's, 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 again, it's that kind of very, very simplistic thinking of like, what's the one thing that causes low back pain? You know, what is the, the root cause of low back pain? I think with over 2 million studies on Google Scholar, as we speak, we've pretty much shown that there is no one single cause. <laughs> we don't know a lot about what causes back pain, but I think we do know that it's not caused by any single <laughs> factor. Um, yeah. So, all right. So I wanted to move now uh, to use that as a segue into uh, sort of um, epistemology and the scientific method, which you alluded to there, where, okay, so if, but, you know, but what if I'm working as a Pilates instructor and I've, like, I've seen a lot of my clients and I've seen that when I strengthen their abs, their back pain gets better. So I know it, right? So, so how, how is, you know, talk me through the epistemological problem with that and how the scientific method is it helpful? Yeah. So basically, uh, that's actually also a logical fallacy. That's called post hoc ergo proctor hoc, uh, meaning because before this, therefore because of this, sort of roughly translated. And we have a innate tendency to be post hoc machines as humans, uh, meaning that we see something happen. And then we see something happen afterwards. And therefore, we think that the thing that happened before caused the other thing to happen. And we do this all of the time. Uh, uh, sort of, uh, as uh, Stephen Novella says, we are pattern generators. We try to see patterns all over uh, in our interaction with the world. But when we are talking about complex, uh, complex uh, phenomenons or complex uh, deal, uh, stuff, then this simplistic model uh, creates problems uh, because often it could be something that happens together with something else or it could be in no relationship with the other. So, um, and it's basically, from my understanding, it's we, at our beginning of our, of our lives, we almost all the time do this uh, type of thinking. And it's when we get older that we start to reflect upon this not actually being true. Um, an example of, of this post hoc thinking is that, um, oh, actually, uh, this line of uh, illogical thinking um, is that uh, my our going I was out walking with my daughter and it started to rain, and her conclusion were okay. It started to rain because we're going to the uh, going swimming, but that's of course is not logical because those things are not connected in any way. So we have a tendency to find patterns even when there are no patterns. So, um, so all right, so in that example that I gave before, like, okay, so I, I'm a Pilates instructor and I've seen a whole bunch of clients and the, the I've, you know, 
given them abdominal strengthening exercises and they all got better. You know, everyone comes back and says, I'm feeling a lot better now after those abdominal strengthening exercises. So like, where's the logical fallacy in that? Yeah. So basically that's the post hoc uh, agroproctor hoc uh, fallacy. So I can't say just because I did something and then something happened, I can't say those two things are linked. They might not be. Uh, it could also be this example. I used this example on my course. So basically my, um, my mother, she had problems with back pain. Then I took her to the movies and we saw Princess of the Caribbean with Johnny Depp. After we were in the movie, well, she didn't have any back pain anymore. So my conclusion, of course, must be that Johnny Depp and uh, uh, going to the movies and watching uh, Pirates of the Caribbean cures back pain. Thanks for the so tip. So of course, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna give that to my my clients. Now. So of course, all my back patients that I see in the, in the working as a physiotherapist, I should go to the movies with them. This is equally as valid from a logical standpoint as I correct the anterior pelvic tilt and then they or I strengthen the abdominal muscles and then they have no pain. Right. So because I'd, I'd, we, I'd like to just case, no. can we, so we, can we just double click on that start, for a sec? That yeah. the so I think that's a really profound point that you just made that okay, the the example of Pirates of the Caribbean is going, you know, cured you know, we went to Pirates of the Caribbean and that cured my mother's low back pain, has exactly the same logical structure as the argument, I strengthened my mother's abdominals and that cured her low back pain. There is no, in terms of the structure of the argument, there is no difference between those two statements. And I think that might be really difficult for a lot of people to comprehend because one of them sounds a lot more plausible on the surface of it and one of them sounds ridiculous. But in fact, they are, you know, from a logical standpoint, they're the same argument. Yeah, exactly. So, so all right. So, what are some of the reasons? You know, because the Johnny Depp example is, you know, plainly nonsensical. But the on the face of it, the 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 assertion that we we strengthen someone's abdominals and then their low back pain improved because of that, you know, sounds a lot more plausible. But what are some of the reasons why someone? why we might have that experience as a practitioner of people coming back and telling us that their low back pain's improved that are not because of we strengthen their abdominals. Yeah, so that could be a number of uh, uh, confounding factors. One, changing something often helps. That's one case. So it could actually help what we are doing but for none of the reasons that we think it's helping. It just merely uh, um, movement by itself could be helping. So it's not the specific movement. Actually, we, we don't even know if we have corrected anything. We have no proof of that. We might think we have corrected their anterior pelvic tilt, or we have actually corrected uh, they are, uh, strengthened their abdominal wall so that they actually have, have a change of movement. We don't know that. And uh, the studies that we have done uh, or that are done with this actually says that just by the mere naked eye, we actually can't really see if we have corrected anything. 
even with palpation, we're, we're pretty terrible at even locating yeah. bony landmarks on that. We can't even find yeah. the PSIS. <laughs> Mate, exactly. And so, and there are other things like, you know, for example, natural history, like they might've just got been going to get better anyway. Right. So even if you did nothing, they yeah, might've had the exactly. same improvement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A good point. Uh, I mentioned this in my course also. So basically we know from research that back pain uh, develops to a natural, um, evolution, if we can call it that, uh, that it often dissipates within five weeks. And that's between, I think it's something like 70%. So if I want to have a 70% success rate within my uh, back training patients uh, intervention program, I should always do interventions that last at least five weeks. Because that, then I will ride uh, the regression to the mean or the normal evolution of back pain. But then it's actually not me that's helping. It's just the mere passing of time that actually helps. Right. So, so you know, what you're saying is back pain you know, generally tends to follow a, a, a trajectory where it, it gets better over the first few weeks for most people, regardless of what you do or don't do with it. And so it comes down to what Voltaire said, that medicine consists of amusing the patient while nature cures the disease. So we're basically yeah. just <laughs> doing, doing, doing uh, nothing of any great value necessarily. Yeah. And if I use the example as before, okay, my mother, she has uh, had back pain for um, four weeks then I schedule that I think, okay, I'm going to take her out, have some fun uh, the week after, one week passes, and then I'm going to take her to the movies. Mm-hmm. Then we really can't see if it's actually the Johnny Depp movie that helped or it's just merely the passing of time right. because she had now had back pain for four weeks and six days, and then I take her to the movie statistically she should be getting better right so we are we are very very we have a huge tendency to see patterns even if there is no pattern right and and so our you know and there are many other reasons why we as practitioners might have the experience of a lot of our clients coming back and saying and telling us that they're they're cured um, after what we did that that are not because of what we did so for example it might be the case of something like survivor bias where where the people who feel better come back because they're like, oh, you know, Lars helped me. I'm going to go back to Lars. But then the people who don't feel better go, oh, Lars is a charlatan. It didn't work. I'm not going back. So that the, you, you only yeah. hear from the people who got better, right? So you think, oh, everyone's yeah. getting better, but that's just because you're not hearing from people who didn't get better. There, and, and that's yeah. called survivor bias. There might be selection bias where, where we know that expectation – you know, really drives outcomes. So people who expect to get better are more likely to get better. And, you know, who's going to come and do Pilates for their back pain? Well, people who expect Pilates to help their back pain, right? So it might be the case that you're only enrolling people who are more likely to get better in the first place. Um, so there are a whole whole host of reasons there. And so how does this, you know, so so essentially what this means is that our personal experience and observation of the world is highly unreliable at figuring at, at, at actually telling us how the world in fact works right so we can have this 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 experience of the this works first time every time but we can be dead wrong 
about that. And so, so how do you know? How do we go about actually figuring out what is you know? Is it Pirates of the Caribbean or is it natural history or was it the abdominal strengthening? You know, how do we go about teasing that out? Yeah. So basically, we could do the study as I talked about earlier. Uh, we need a study where we take people who have not back pain, and then we uh, we see if there's a connection with uh, the the strength of the abdominal wall. When we have done that study, and we actually have proof that actually okay, people that uh, that have a, a low uh, level of strength in, in the anterior abdominal wall. Uh, they develop um, back pain. Then we need another study, or we actually need to reproduce it first. And then after we have uh, another research group have reproduced it, then we need a follow-up study that showed, okay, can you actually influence this uh, with strength exercise? We might be the case as it is with some where we are in the in the we're in a situation where we can't correct it, such as easy just strengthen it. It might be a genetic pre disposition. It might be a whole host of other factors that we actually not so quickly can correct. Right. You know, I would love to see a study that that had enrolled three groups of people, all who have low back pain. And one group gets abdominal strengthening exercises for six weeks. One group just watches Pirates of the Caribbean. And one group does nothing. <laughs> and six weeks later, we see, uh, you know, so maybe 100 people in each group. Well, let's put 1,000 people in each group. And then we'll see at the, end of, at the end of six weeks, you know, how many people in each group had improvement. And that would be a very interesting study, don't you think? Yeah. And yeah. if we backtrack a bit uh towards the um, why do we need critical thinking one key thing we thing we also need to or people need to learn or know is that to show that something actually works is quite difficult and we can't really do and that's one of my key top uh, topics that i try to teach health professionals we can't do that in the clinic. We can't show that something works in the clinic because there's way too many factors that can influence. And we have a highly flawed data set, meaning that for first, or first, we don't have a control group. There's a high risk of selection bias, as you talked about earlier. We don't have patients that come in with a low back pain and then we do nothing. So we're highly biased towards the people we, we uh, treat. Uh, so by default, we can't show that something works in the clinic. And then that's one of the reasons why we need research. Wow, this is an awesome conversation. But before we move forward, let's take a quick break. Hey, imagine this. When you meet a new client, you know exactly what to do. You're confident because you already have a plan, a plan that's so powerful and versatile that you can use it with any client, big clients, small clients, clients with pain in weird body parts, clients with diagnoses ending in itis, osis, or opathy, clients with neurogenic pain, 
whatever that is. Well, actually, neuro just means nerve and genic means produced by. So neurogenic pain is just pain that is produced by nerves. Anyway, clients with balance issues, clients with pain in any body part or in many body parts, all with this one weird trick. No, I'm just joking. There is no one weird trick, of course, that's going to solve everybody's problems. But if you come and study with us in our Diploma of Clinical Pilates, you will genuinely learn how to help people with all of those issues that I mentioned, plus many more. You'll learn a deep understanding of how the human body works and of modern pain science and evidence-based best practice. And you'll learn how to apply that knowledge to genuinely help people with their musculoskeletal issues. This is a one-year in-depth program. I would love to have you in the program. It's 100% online, no travel required at all. You can do it totally from your lounge room. If you're interested, I'd love to have you. Come and join us. Click on the link in the show notes, and I look forward to seeing you in class. Go on, click on the link. All right, so it was something that I've observed uh, in people in practitioners, and, and I went through a moment of this myself as I learned about this stuff. And, you know, when you move, you know, when I was initially initially trained, I was, I had a high degree of certainty about how the world worked. You know, I learned that there are seven fundamental movement patterns and you can correct anterior pelvic tilt. And when you do it, the world is a good place to be. Um, and so everything was logical and <laughs> the you know, uh, and, and everything made sense. And then as I started to learn about critical thinking and, and how my own senses and experience were a terrible guide and unreliable guide to actually whether, you know, what I was doing was having the desired effect or not. I and in fact, you know, whether, whether treatments are effective or not, I, I came to, you know, to quite a kind of a nihilistic place where, and I think a lot of people go through this kind of gulf on their way to, to, to becoming um, I guess, evidence-based practitioners is, is I started to think, well, if I can't trust my own senses and I don't know if anything works or not, like, well, what's, you know, <laughs> what am I to do? Right. I, I, there's nothing to grasp onto. Everything works the same as everything else or doesn't work the same. Like, how do I know if it wasn't Johnny Depp? You know, like <laughs> what, what's the point of me? <laughs> Why am I bothering to do anything with anyone? And so, you know, what advice have you got for somebody who's falling into that pit of <laughs> nihilistic uh, thinking? Yeah, so so basically, we're actually talking a bit about uh, epistemology, which is basically the knowledge of knowledge. So basically, if we are to make an estimate of something being true or less true or not true, we need to take in account the process the knowledge process that we have used to gain this uh, uh, knowledge that we have or this uh, assumption that we have and that's basically epistemological processes so by default our own observations or what we see in the clinic are more unreliable so meaning that they there is a higher risk of what we are observing to not be true. And that's why we need for the, mention, the, the reasons we mentioned before, why we need uh, research. And we need uh, 
a proper conducted research study. Um, so basically, we we need to step back and think more critically about the uh, assumptions we can make ourselves regarding the way the tools we use to get to know something. So, you know, that would involve, you know, reading guidelines or systematic reviews on what is the best practice for treating, you know, someone with a particular condition, right? Yeah, exactly. Or or use use the knowledge that we have that is more likely to be true. Not not, uh, totally correct. Because that's um, that's a unicorn a lot of people are chasing and doesn't exist. So uh, I think it was Richard Feynman. He had a saying that something like uh, science is more about what we can know with different degrees of certainty, meaning that our own observations is prone to be uh, or might uh, is more prone to be. Uh, erroneous, uh, filled with errors, but a well-conducted scientific study tries to, uh, tries to um, guard ourselves from making these errors in observations. Right. And, and so it can be a bit daunting or very daunting, I think, for uh, practitioners just whose sort of minds are, are just kind of coming to grips with these concepts around, well, where do I start? Because literally, if I go to Google Scholar and type in low back pain, like 2 million results come up. So, so you know, there's no way I could read even 1% of 1% of, of all of those scientific papers. So, you know, as a, as a practitioner, how do I know where to start? Where, where, where is a good place to get information that is more likely to be true? Yeah, so first off, it has to be uh, published in uh, a peer-reviewed literature. Uh, that's the first step. Then um, it should hopefully also be published in a, um, in a, one of the premier research journals within that topic, meaning, uh, meaning if it's about pain, uh, low back pain, then it, if it's published in uh, the, the, the IASP's journal, which is called pain, then it is a high likelihood that it's good knowledge. Uh, if it's um, published in some obscure, non-peer-reviewed journal uh, that's uh, not really within that topic or is not known to be dealing with that topic, then it's more likely to be untrue. Right. And so, then we have... Uh, so sorry, no, if I could just un- unpack that just for a sec. So if I'm looking at a study that's about pain and it's from a journal of the International Association for the Study of Pain, the IASP, that's more likely, you know, that kind of increases my confidence in the quality of that information compared to if it was published in something like the Natural Therapies Review or something like that. Yeah, or the, the Portuguese Manual Therapy Annual Review of uh, Manipulation. Some right. obscure journal. All right. So, so all right. So, peer reviewed. In other words, you know, other scientists have tried to pick holes in it, and have have not succeeded. <laughs> and then, and then, it's published in um, a, I guess, a, a prestigious or a, a highly respected 
would probably be a better term, journal that is relevant to the the topic that we're you know that of the study. What else? Yeah. So then we have to um, to also take into account well who published it, um, and then we have also to take into account okay were it actually reproduced. So what we're talking about here is it's more likely to be true. It's not to say that it's always true because sometimes peer review fails. Sometimes studies that are too good to be true gets published. So we have to look that, okay, is this actually, is this a new hypothesis that has been tested or is, and is it based on something with a lot of research behind it? Um, and it has it been reproduced that we talked about earlier? Uh, there's one case, uh, one scary case um, of um, the case of um, Hanne Albert, which is actually a, a Danish researcher. She published a very, very good uh, study that showed quite good results with low back pain, as I recall, uh, with, um, with injection of antibiotics. Uh, because uh, of uh, the hypothesis were that, well, it's uh, something called modic changes within the uh, spinal uh, column that actually caused, uh, basically it's a bacterial infection of the spine. This causes low back pain. And she showed that if we um, try to get rid of this um, bacterial infection, then uh, people get better. And her results actually showed that they got better. And then they started examining it, and uh, there were a lot from the science, a lot of researchers from the scientific community that said, "Well, this is way too early to uh, to say anything with the with any degree of certainty." Mm-hmm. And then uh, it came forth that actually four of the five researchers actually before the study were published uh, had started up a company to offer this type of treatment to people with low back pain. And then there were a follow-up study that actually showed that, well, actually many people without low back pain have this uh, bacteria. So a way of looking at science also is as it actually is a sort of self-correcting process. So this is actually the the story um, I'm talking about here. However scary it is, is not an argument that science doesn't work. It's actually an argument that science does work. But of course, scientists are also human and they also make mistakes. Mm. So, all right, so... It's important to look for, you know, kind of, I guess, extrapolating from that, to look for established um, results. So by which I mean they've been replicated. So it's not just one study that found it, but, you know, multiple different research groups have conducted similar studies and have, you know, found a pretty similar result. And so the way that we can get at that is by looking at systematic reviews, which which review all the literature on a particular question. Um, and looking at clinical guidelines, so guidelines putting out by, put out by, for instance, go, you know, departments of health in the government or the the international 
World Congress on physiotherapy or you know things like that that are that are guidelines put together by a whole panel of experts who have reviewed the the broader literature and weeded out any studies that are kind of outliers or haven't been replicated and and come up with sets of you know here's what's currently known on this topic sort of thing and so those yeah. those national guidelines you know where available or you know clinical guidelines or systematic reviews are really the the kind of the at the the, the current gold standard on how to where to find quality information um but you know in in a uh, there there are two topics I want to I want to touch on before we finish in in a nutshell first like what is known about how to treat you know musculoskeletal pain so if I'm if I'm a Pilates instructor and I'm not degree qualified I don't do manual therapy I, I don't you know do electrotherapy or any of those other things I just I just do exercise with people um, you know what is what is you know can you give us a summary of like what is the current best practice for for treating people with pain yeah okay so this is a huge topic um so basically for my um so basically there are multiple reviews now that look at the musculoskeletal field uh, within uh, with pain disorders or pain that uh, and the the reviews state that they should be dealt with within a biopsychosocial model. And the biopsychosocial model is, is as noted by Tracy et al. 2017, that is now considered the, to be the most comprehensive theoretical perspective of pain because it's, it, uh, it accounts for the many different contributors to pain meaning psychological, biological, and social. So as a shortcut to provide better high-quality care, it should be, uh, for people with pain, it should be, uh, they should be treated within a biopsychosocial approach with using the biopsychosocial model. Now, it's, it's important to note when we're talking about pain models, uh, to note what... Um, the famous British uh, statistician, uh, George Box, states about models. He states that essentially all models are wrong, but some are useful. So the way I, I look a bit at models is that they try to explain us some, something about a complex topic. So basically, one view of pain models could be all models could be that they are actually teaching tools, but they are not perfect and they're not 100% correct. And scientific models will all often evolve as we become, we learn more. So they are not fixed. Um, yeah, so basically a shortcut would be that pain should be paid pain of any location meaning low back pain knee pain elbow pain neck pain foot pain uh, hip pain should be treated within a biopsychosocial approach that looks upon many different contributors to pain and so does that apply even to somebody with a diagnosis of say disc bulge or shoulder impingement or um, meniscal tear or pelvic instability does that still apply to those people yeah that still applies uh, so 
basically pain is pain. Uh, then that's a caveat to this. Well, pain is pain in this case, um, meaning that a pain in any location is still a biopsychosocial experience, meaning even acute pain or chronic pain or persistent pain, as it's often called, is influenced by multiple factors, not only one. Even something as, um, as concrete as an acute injury, tissue injury, is still influenced by multiple factors. So I actually just wrote an article, short article or short blog on my website regarding the misunderstanding that there often are within the spectrum of acute and chronic pain. Uh, the acute and chronic pain spectrum is actually just uh, arbitrary timestamps. So the, the, the example I use is that the pain doesn't all of a, a patient's pain doesn't all of a sudden change or morph into a totally different sort of clinical entity when a patient goes from having pain two months and 28 days and they cross over towards the chronic threshold. Then their pain doesn't change. It's the same pain. Now there, there can be certain um, what could you call certain things associated with having pain longer time. But actually the mere notion of acute and chronic pain doesn't say anything about the underlying mechanism. It only says something about how long time you have had the pain. Right. All right. And so I think that's that's a really great, I guess, uh, rule of thumb or you know, some simple takeaway for people is all pain should be treated within a biopsychosocial framework, which really inherently moves away from this kind of single factor thinking of, you know, what is the cause of the pain and, and really more starts to think about what are some of the factors that might be contributing to the pain and really starts to think about pain as more of a, uh, a result of multiple factors some of which are biological, which includes biomechanics, but also includes things like sleep and inflammation and, and other things. And then psychological, people's thoughts, emotions, beliefs, and then social, the context in which we exist and illness behavior and support of loved ones and workers' compensation and other things that are you know relevant uh, in the context. And so uh, I would, you know, let's move on from that. And I think if you, if you, if you take, uh, Anything from this conversation so far, I would say go and seek out somewhere to learn how to practice with a biopsychosocial perspective is probably really valuable. Um, I just want to finish, Lars, on um, with a little bit of a – to shift gears into a little bit of a, an insight into the kind of shift that's happening within the physiotherapy profession around the world at the moment because – Within the Pilates world, uh, I think we often sort of see physiotherapists, one, as kind of these, uh, as as being always right, you know, that physiotherapists all have the same knowledge and all, you know, know all things about the body and and thus are always correct. And second, we see the physiotherapist for therapy profession as kind of this, this single united, um, you know, entity 
where in reality, I think that, you know, the, the, the transition that's happening within Pilates right at the moment, you know, what we've talked about in this conversation that from uncritical thinking to critical thinking, you know, from a model of biomechanical fault equals pain, therefore, uh, the profession is about fixing biomechanical fault, you know, moving from that mentality to this uh, more critical appraisal of our assumptions and towards a more biopsychosocial approach where we're not just, we're not fixing and we're not just addressing the, you know, movement quote dysfunctions, but we're also, or maybe we're not even addressing <laughs> movement dysfunctions because we start to recognize that they're not necessarily a thing. Um, where we're moving to this more holistic biopsychosocial framework, that you know that is mirrored, I think, in the transition that's happening in the physiotherapy world at the moment. And there's quite a bit of, I would say, turbulence within the physiotherapy profession. Could you just give us a, a bit of an, an insider, you know, view on on what's happening there, please? Yeah. So I totally agree that there's a lot of turmoil within the physiotherapy field. Uh, especially in uh, in the more um, outspoken uh, physios within social media. But as a whole, I'm sad to say that from my point of view, I don't actually think that as a whole, the physiotherapy world is going through this transformation. I think it's a group of very active, highly reflective, critical physiotherapists that use the power of social media and I'm one of those to try to inform and try to critique and try to learn. But as a whole, I don't uh, really see this trend. So um, a good uh, a point was made by Derek Griffin, who's a very good physiotherapist who I uh, am very honored to have uh, shared this, the stage with uh, in Oslo. He has a saying that, he, that patients are still being told to sit up straight. So as a whole, we should, we should not assume that what goes on uh, on social media is actually is a representation of what actually goes on in the physiotherapy world. So uh, one example he brings up, is that if we look at the qualitative literature, meaning the literature that looks upon people's feelings and beliefs, then it's still highly geared towards biomedical and biomechanical beliefs. Uh, so there's often the saying that uh, on, on these uh, social media platforms that the pendulum of pain treatments has swung too far, meaning that it's totally over within the uh, psychological and social fields. But in reality, from my point of view, this is only on uh, the um, in the message boards and the forums and stuff like that. Really, as a whole, the field is still the physiotherapy field is still highly associated with. Uh, find it fixer model, the operator model, meaning that we are actually correcting or changing some something in another person, uh, like anterior pelvic tilt, like you mentioned before, um, 
and and this uh, we find a problem and we fix a problem and it still imagines the physiotherapist as the healer we are something that heals people and not as a more logical and more scientifically founded model as an interactor we are uh, we are interacting with another person who and that person has their own beliefs their own will their own uh, autonomy um, basically we are interacting with another human another living being and this um you know that's it saddens me to hear you say this because you know this um, model of biopsychosocial care that is um, collaborative and is patient centered and is you know autonomy supportive uh, and it moves away from the fixer model and 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 towards uh, an in, more interactive enabling approach like this has been enshrined in clinical guidelines and national guidelines for the last two decades and and so this is not cutting edge radical you know revolutionary stuff by a handful of you know crazy fringe physiotherapist advocating this this is this is government endorsed best practice around the world and yet you know it seems to me from some of the literature i've read that like you say the majority of physiotherapists are still more than two decades behind the evidence and they're still telling people to sit up straight correcting their pelvic tilt giving them tens and electrotherapy and you know goodness knows what else you know what are we to do yeah, so, so I think as a whole, there, as I uh, alluded to earlier, there are more and more outspoken advocates of the biopsychosocial model. And the debates that are being done on a daily, daily basis is helping. So I have been debating within this field for at least 10 years maybe even more. And I'm seeing that more and more are outspoken and they are actually challenging dogma on a daily basis, which is a very good thing. But as a whole, the profession is still steered in the same direction. And I would argue that we need if you have not made the transition to a more evidence-based, patient-centered, biopsychosocial way of approaching and dealing with people living with pain, then you need to do the, this transfer as soon as possible because the gap between what the research, the evidence states, and what the field as a whole is doing is only becoming wider. So one example is a 2007 paper written by Lorimer Mosley, where he makes uh, four distinction regarding four uh, specific statements regarding uh, pain. Those statements are actually more well founded now within the research than that they were when the paper were published. So we have a gold mine of high quality research uh, supporting the notion that what we should do and particularly also what we should not do that's also research now 
many people does, doesn't like to get to know what they should not do, but that's an important thing about if we are able to, if we should be uh, providing quality of care to patients, that, that then if we were to provide, if we should provide quality of care to patients, then we need to say no to low quality of care. Right. And, and that's often missed. We think that we should just provide, uh, provide the patient with as many tools and so many interventions as we possibly can. But in my view, we need to step back and actually say, well, if I'm supposed to provide quality of care, then I should only have quality tools in my toolbox to use that metaphor. Right. And in the physiotherapy profession, a couple of examples of low quality would be, say, using, uh, you know, quote, therapeutic ultrasound or dry needling, um, which have been, you know, pretty conclusively shown to be no more effective than sham. Um, And in the Pilates world, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say, we've got this um, really incredibly sticky attachment to transversus abdominis retraining that just will not will not die despite multiple systematic reviews concluding that it's no more effective than any other form of active um, exercise uh, and so it's it's kind of like the silent majority maybe you know clinging to these uh, now I guess you know you'd call them non-evidence based or outmoded or obsolete notions of best practice and those those practices take up space that could be occupied by more high quality interventions you know so there's a real cost yeah. to doing these things yeah there's and also i think uh, to backtrack a bit what needs to be done to change this from my point of view this change will only be put forward with a larger scale if our education changes. And I'm sad to say that from my point of view, there's no indication that this has been done. So we are still still learning the old theories about the body, even we know they are not true. And this is also this was also I even learned it when I went to physiotherapy school and I know that they are still being taught because I have students contacting me. And this is not only a problem in Denmark or in Sweden or in Scandinavia. This is a problem on a global scale. And we have evidence supporting this. There are researchers, research supporting the notion that what we learn, particularly uh, surrounding pain, is not in uh, adequate yeah we're we're still um conceptualizing pain many of us as a, a linear biomechanical output based on an, a sort of 19th century mechanical engineering model of how the body works with cogs and levers and electrical wires and uh sadly um it does seem to be the case that 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 is the the model that is implicit in much education and certainly within the Pilates realm that is, you know, proudly uh, <laughs> delivered um, by many, many organisations. Still, Lars, yeah. I would love to keep chatting, so but, one, but but it's uh, we're just sorry. about out of time. One, one last thing. So basically, 
one example of this is the notion of TextNet. Oh. So TextNet is, is a quite new thing, but it's founded in this old way of thinking. And the assumption is that actually if we are looking down at our smartphone, then uh, we, are, uh, we are stimulating our body to uh, a certain level that's above the threshold of the muscles and ligaments and uh, joints. And this will cause pain. Uh, a funny notion there is, or the scapegoat is smartphones, of course. But the, notion, the funny thing is that actually tech, neck pain were quite common even before the smartphone were introduced. Well, that was news, newspaper neck, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> what? That was due to newspaper Sorry? neck, wasn't it? That was due to newspaper neck, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, of course, newspaper neck, yeah. So, but this gives a bit of a problem with the people stating that it's actually the smartphone's fault when pain were actually quite common, neck pain were quite common even before the smartphone. Mm. And before newspaper neck, possibly uh, papyrus neck or um, yeah, fire, neck. fire stick neck, <laughs> cave painting neck. <laughs> yeah, we, we often just uncritically accept these notions. You know, we've all seen the meme on social media of the, the head as heavy as a bowling ball or whatever. And we just uncritically accept this a lot of the time without thinking like, well, hold on. Firstly, was was this actually a problem before smartphones and uh, is it worse or better or the same now? And secondly, like we have these really sort of paradoxical different views of loading the body. And so, you know, if, if we said like, hey, let's do some abdominal exercises, everyone would be like, great, load up the abs, load up the abs. That's fantastic. But then if we, you know, if we, suddenly if we're loading our neck, that's dangerous. You know, like we have this kind of fear-based uh, kind of almost knee-jerk reaction to loading certain parts of the body being a, a bad thing. Um, yeah, it's it's a bit like the the body can only adapt and become stronger if we are in the gym or in a Pilates studio. Right. Everything we do outside the gym, the body doesn't get stronger. No, it just causes wear and tear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then it's wear and tear. Uh, Lars, I love our conversations and I look forward to the next one. Um, thanks so much for making the time to to talk. Uh, you're a, and 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 for all you do on social media, you're a, a, a voice, a, you know, not quite a lone voice of reason, but certainly one of a very few voices of reason. <laughs> and uh, you're doing great things for the profession. So um, thanks very much. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means 
you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.